are so delighted for a variety of reasons to have an old friend, Waylin Wong, uh, joining us today to talk about a topic that we have discussed talking about on this podcast on many occasions, but we've been reluctant to do that in part because we don't know anything about it. And <laughs> since since it's partly legal, it's a little embarrassing that we don't know much about it. But then we heard an episode of Planet Money's Indicator about the trillion dollar coin. And since the episode was hosted by an old friend, uh, the aforementioned Weilin Wong, we have coerced her to join us. But I also want to say that I am particularly grateful to Waylon because she was kind enough to allow me to go on one of her shows. I think I might have begged and pleaded on Russian debt default. And I had a very selfish reason for that. And that's that my mother has been deeply skeptical for almost 25 years that I have a real job. And she she seems to think that I do very little work and <laughs> must not must just be doing something illegal or nefarious to support myself until she listened to Waylon's episode. And once I was on Planet Money's indicator, my mom is convinced that I must have a real job. So I, I, I am especially grateful to Waylon. Also, this, this podcast is aimed at our students first and foremost, and they listen to Planet Money's indicator. We often assign episodes because they're so clear and well done. So we have a whole variety of reasons for being thrilled that we get to talk to Waylon today about the U.S. debt ceiling and all of the different things about it. We're not going to be able to get to every single topic regarding the debt ceiling that we want to ask her about, but hopefully we can get to some of the key topics. But first and foremost, welcome to our little podcast, Waylon. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. I was so excited when you reached out. Well, we are thrilled. So, Waylon, can we begin by just asking you the most basic of questions as to what is the debt ceiling and why do we even have it? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that even I had to refresh myself on, even though these debt ceiling debates come up politically every few years. I had to refresh myself again because it's like this thing we take for granted. But then it's like, yeah, what is this and why do we have it? And interestingly, thanks to an episode that The Indicator did, uh, and this precedes my time at The Indicator, but thanks to that episode, I learned that the U.S. is one of only two countries that even has a debt ceiling. It's us in Denmark. And it was put in place in the U.S. during World War I. And so we've just been living with this debt ceiling since World War I. And the reason it was put into place all the way back in the early 1900s is because it used to be that Congress would have to authorize each new round of borrowing every time the Treasury needed money for something. And during World War I, the spending requirements for the war were so great that instead of having Congress need to go back 
uh, or having Treasury go back hat in hand to Congress every time they said, we'll just let you borrow all of this money, issue all of this debt just up to a certain amount. And so we've been living with this ever since. And it's become obviously a huge political problem. Can, can you give us a little bit of a sense of when it started to be weaponized? Because so, in a sense, the historical origins show it as a, it's a liberalizing change, right? It, it goes from Congress more or less dictating the particulars of when you can borrow and how you can borrow to Congress giving a, a kind of limited blank check. Like you can do what you want up until you reach this debt threshold. So it's, in a way, it's a it's a expansion of the executive's power to borrow, and then now, of course, it turns out to be something quite different in terms of how it's used. Do you have a sense of when it started to be more of a politically contentious of weapon that that um, especially minority parties in Congress used? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think my answer might be either a little bit wrong or colored by kind of my own recency bias, I will say, as kind of a thinking human being who's been paying attention to politics. But I feel like my first introduction to this as a big political football or a hot button political topic would have been just over a decade ago. So 2011, there was a big, big debt ceiling showdown. And I feel like ever since then, we've seen the debt ceiling come back up um, as this really uh, contentious political topic. Uh, I'm not sure if there was there were any big showdowns before 2011, but that's when I feel like if you even look back at coverage of the debt ceiling today, it seems to go back to 20 uh, to 2011 as um, as when we had one of the first big go arounds with it. So Waylon, if you don't mind, and if Mark doesn't mind, I, I'm wondering if we can stick on this historical origins question a little more to get more color on the rationales for the debt ceiling. So you had mentioned there, there seems to be only one other sovereign with a debt ceiling. Do we know why there was a requirement of congressional authorization in the first place? Because the, looking at the debt ceiling by itself strikes me as a little bit incomplete. The And also just to provide a little bit of uh, historical context as I understand the history of what one of our recent guests, uh, Rich Schrager, would have described as uh, fiscal constitutional provisions, which is that in the late 1800s, in the US in particular, there was a lot of concern about executives, meaning the executive branch, in both the states and at the federal level overspending. And so there were lots of, there was crisis, there were a bunch of crises and many legislatures put in place constraints on the executive branch of being able to borrow. And so while there's only one other sovereign with a debt ceiling, there are lots of states that have similar kinds of provisions. And if I remember correctly, Mark and I worked on a paper on this, but now 
in my old age, I can't remember exactly what it was. Puerto Rico had some kind of constraints uh, and those arguably were violated in the recent debt crisis that Puerto Rico had. But it, the, the general economic theory seems to come from the literature on what is called credible commitment and this idea that the bond markets will trust you more if you have rules that constrain how much borrowing you can do uh, because they want they like to see constraints and the idiocies that we've had mm -hmm. since 2011 doesn't seem to be the kind of behavior that should give confidence to the bond market because if if the whole reason that we have these kinds of rules in place is to you know lower our cost of credit because the bond market will see these constraints and say oh you're going to you're going to be responsible instead what we're showing is yeah we have rules and we just figure out ways around them whenever we can and we don't really care because you the bond markets your interests are not really what we care about. So is this even part of the discussion? I, I confess I've been reading a lot about the debt ceiling and at least with respect to the US debt ceiling, I don't really see any discussion of credible commitment theory or reference to what's happening in the States. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, this is the first I've heard of credible commitment theory. So it sounds like credible commitment means that you see the lender as being prudent because the, the lender has said, we have these limits on how much we borrow. So you can trust us because we're not going to get out of control and get in over our heads with borrowing, right? That Bingo. sounds like what it is. Bingo. Okay. That, th this is a classic paper. So I, I, I think, uh, and Mark can correct me, there's a classic paper by Barry Weingast and Douglas North. The Douglas North wins the Nobel Prize for some of his ideas around this. It, it's probably mid-80s paper. And they were trying to explain uh, the England's uh, rise to power. And one of the stories about England's rise to power is that the English are suddenly able to borrow massively uh, despite irresponsible kings, because they put in place constraints in their constitution mm. on misbehavior, borrowing misbehavior by the crown. And then this, there's an entire literature in growth and development in economics, but sort of interestingly not in law, about whether or not this North and wine gas theory is correct or not. And my sense is the debt ceiling is part of this story, but it, it's sort of gotten forgotten in the modern debates. Yeah, you know, what's really interesting is I think you are kind of driving at this question of why is the U.S. considered a good borrower and why does it get to enjoy a lower cost of borrowing than other sovereigns, right? Why are treasuries considered, you know, the safest and, they, um, and, and the U.S. gets a very low cost of borrowing compared to other countries? And I I think that from what I've been reading about the debt ceiling, it's the low cost of borrowing and the uh, kind of confidence that the U.S. enjoys from investors as being a very safe place to park your money. It doesn't come from the debt ceiling law. It doesn't. It, it doesn't come from 
people buying treasures being like, well, I know that we're not going to go a penny above whatever is like 22 trillion. So so I feel confident. It's that the U.S. Treasury market has developed into an enormous, very liquid, extremely safe market and that the U.S. has not ever defaulted. And so it's considered nothing is considered safer than treasuries, but it's not because of the debt ceiling that treasuries are considered safe. It's because the U.S. has always paid on time and because it's a massive economy that is has never even, you know, has has only very, very rarely come even close to a hint of of default. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like the debt ceiling law itself, I don't think is what is imbuing investors with that confidence, but it, uh, but the, it's, it's more about just what U.S. treasuries stand for. And that is how the U.S. is able to enjoy very low cost of borrowing. It, it does make sense. And, and I think I'm, I find it a little hard to think of the debt ceiling in these terms anyway, given it's, again, my sort of understanding of the historical origins is that it's a, it is a liberalizing of the treasury's ability to borrow in its, in its origins when, um, when the restrictions would have been much more uh, draconian before then. Um, but I, I guess this is a good point to shift because you're rightly pointing us at the, all of the reasons why the the treasury market is the the sort of gold standard in some respects for sovereign debt and and most of those reasons are you know they're complicated they have to do with the role of the dollar in the global economy they the search for safe assets and all of that and i'm wondering if we can transition into some of the ideas that have been proposed for circumventing the debt limit, maybe starting with the trillion dollar coin, because I understand, as I understand those ideas, the sort of the, at core there are some technical objections to them, but the core objection is like you're going to mess up your um, your good standing with the bond markets if you pull one of these wacky scenarios to circumvent the debt limit. So maybe we can we can talk about the wacky scenarios and then talk about the risks. W- would you just kind of explain the trillion dollar coin for our the the subset of our listeners who don't know about it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, this is a really fun topic to look into when I started doing the reporting and then I feel like I got a little bit platinum pilled. So, um <laughs> but the trillion dollar coin is this idea that the US mint could create a platinum coin and it has to be platinum and this coin would be worth an enormous amount of money they could put any denomination on it so let's just pick a trillion dollars and the reason the coin has to be platinum is because there is a law from i believe 1997 that gives the treasury the ability to mint a platinum coin of any denomination it's very very open ended and so and so this platinum coin can be worth anything Uh, face value. So you would mint a $1 trillion coin. The U.S. Treasury would then deposit this coin at the Fed, the Federal Reserve, in this case, acting as the Treasury's fiscal agent, which means it does the banking for the government. And so the Fed would accept this coin as a deposit. Now, poof, a trillion dollars has appeared in the government's bank account, and it can use this money to pay out all of its bills that it had. And then the debt ceiling doesn't need to be touched because the government doesn't need to borrow any more money, doesn't need to issue any more debt. It can make its social security payments and 
you know, all of its payroll with the money that has appeared in its account. And the objections to it uh, that I've heard range from the the kind of hyper-technical to the pragmatic uh, to the sort of existential, I guess. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to skip the hyper-technical, but one of the pragmatic objections I've heard is, you know, this this scheme, like like most schemes for money printing, requires the cooperation of the Fed. And there seems to be some doubt about whether you know, maybe the Fed's bluffing, maybe it's not, but there seems to be some doubt about whether the Fed would accept the coin when push came to shove. Do you have a sense of kind of what uh, the seriousness that we should take that, what Fed officials are really thinking, anything like that? Yeah, so I think, yes, that is one of the big objections that people have pointed out, that the Fed could simply reject the coin. It would not accept it as a deposit. And, you know, the, the proponents of the coin say that the Fed uh, as a fiscal agent, has to accept the coin. Um, someone I talked to also pointed out that the Treasury has many fiscal agents. It's not just the Fed. And so in theory, again, in total theory, the <laughs> Treasury could also take the trillion dollar coin to a commercial bank that acts its, as its fiscal agent and try to deposit it there, like, I don't know, a chase or something. Um, that seems even more unlikely, you know, that if the Fed rejected the coin, that you know, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase would say, oh, no, 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 we'll take it. Um, but I think there is this issue that comes up with the role of the Fed and why the Fed might be reluctant to participate in something like this. And it's because it kind of, um, in some people's minds, collapses the role of the Fed, uh, the fiscal, it, like it kind of collapses the fiscal monetary roles into one. And that makes things very messy for the Fed. Um, it doesn't want to uh, be seen as kind of putting its nose into the fiscal side of things. And also this could possibly call into question Fed independence if they felt like they were participating in this kind of, you know, big political economic gimmick uh, as part of the, the debt ceiling debate. I think the Fed would much rather stay out of it and um, and not have to do something, like make a big gesture like this. So, Waylon, if... If the trillion dollar coin is just involves getting the Fed on board, which is difficult to do, they don't want to participate in this scammy looking thing with rolling the coin down, you know, the avenues uh, in Washington, <laughs> D.C., as people seem to like with a lot of TV crews and all of that. Is it just a giant embarrassment for everybody involved, which might be the goal <laughs> of some of the people proposing it to show how ridiculous uh, this is? And I do understand uh, that rationale. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the proposals that actually seem to have economic value and wouldn't involve, as I understand them, the involvement, uh, they wouldn't involve the sort of interdepartmental conflicts. So th there are, uh, as I understand, at least a couple of highly plausible proposals out there, and uh, my apologies to the originators of the true originators of these ideas, uh, in case I'm not getting them right. Uh, but one of them is from a beloved former teacher of mine who's been a guest on this podcast, the economist uh, John Cochran, who 
has written about the value of using perpetuities. So the, mm -hmm. these are uh, the, you know, bonds where you would just have no principal amount, uh, just coupons. And the, the, as I understand, again, I, I apologize if I'm getting this wrong, the debt ceiling only applies to principal. And so you can have coupons that are as large as you want, just not principal, which if you're a financial engineer, it means there's really no constraint. And Cochrane argued that, look, perpetuities are, are a good thing anyway. There are independent, good economic reasons to issue perpetual securities. Uh, there are many countries that have issued these in the past, England in particular uh, had a number of uh, issuances of perpetuities. This is a good reason for us to use them. It doesn't violate the debt ceiling. Uh, we, we have great credit, we should do them. And then Matt Levine of Bloomberg did a, did a couple of blog posts, I think some in 2011, some more recently, where he has a version of this, not quite perpetuities, but just lowering the principal significantly and then just paying people more interest. In economic terms, it's the same thing, but it would not violate the debt ceiling. And if we all agree that, look, the markets are not looking to the debt ceiling and compliance with the debt ceiling as an indicator of the U.S.'s creditworthiness, then are these and these solutions are not quite as scammy, especially the Cochrane <laughs> solution. It you know it's from a world famous economist. Uh, it has independent economic value, uh, but it, it doesn't seem to have gotten the kind of attention that the trillion dollar coin has. <laughs> well, the trillion dollar coin is certainly more evocative and cinematic in its appeal, I think, especially when, you know, you start saying, oh, did you know there's this loophole in this 1997 law and it has to be made out of platinum? And then you start imagining whose face you would put on it and how big would it be? And what if there was a heist and what would you do with it? And also it has a lot of fun, I think, attached to the idea that when you talk about perpetual bonds or the this thing that Matt Levine explained, premium bonds, then that just for someone who's not super into fixed income just sounds like the peanuts adults talking like, wah, 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 wah. you know, it's like it's really kind of boring it's, and incomprehensible in a way that so trillion true. dollar coin doesn't. So true. I keep thinking trillion dollar coin. They're going to make a Disney movie out of this. It, it's just like it has like this Disneyfication of the rolling the coin down Connecticut Avenue. <laughs> the, like, you know, some teenagers are going to be involved and they're going to have some romance and they think it's a little bit ridiculous and but we're not talking about the serious stuff and yet they, there's so much chat about yeah i you know i do like um reading about the perpetual bonds and the premium bonds as well because as you point out these seem a lot less uh kind of they seem less like shenanigans and more like potentially serious ideas that you could actually put into motion that you know, serious people at the Fed and the Treasury would, would look at. And you're right that in both cases, whether it's a perpetual bond, that's the kind of bond where it makes interest payments in perpetuity with no maturity date. Um, and then the premium bonds, which is a bond where 
for example, the treasury would sell a hundred dollar bond for $200 and then it would pay out um, like over a hundred percent interest. Um, both of these are financial engineering tricks to get around the debt ceiling issue because as you point out, uh, only the principal counts toward the debt ceiling. So both of these kinds of bonds are ways to issue debt without having more principal counted against the debt ceiling. Does that make sense? It does for sure. And it makes me, so to, if I can kind of encapsulate the core objection, I think a lot of people have to all of these proposals, but especially to the trillion dollar coin proposal, it it picks up on your, I think you're completely correct comment about how the trillion dollar coin is sort of a fun idea. And the objection is that the securities issued by the US government are not supposed to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) They're supposed to be like money. They're supposed to set a risk-free yield curve. They're supposed to do, and they do do all kinds of fundamental things in the global economy. And the funner they get, the worse they're going to be at doing those things. Is that a, how seriously do you take that objection? Oh, I take it very seriously because I think even the fact that we are now even ticking through a list of financial engineering tricks or accounting gimmicks to get us around the debt ceiling, that already signals some level of deep unseriousness taking place in the economy, right? And that because it's like, how did we even let the economy and the government get to this point where we're trying to crunch the numbers on, well, here's how you would sell a premium bond and here's how you would price it. It's like, maybe we never should have gotten to this point. Um, and the fact that we're even talking about it, does that already start to undermine confidence in the treasury market, right? So that if, let's say, the treasury were going to try to issue perpetual bonds, premium bonds, would that even, what would that even do to treasury markets? Because if people know that these bonds are being issued because we're having all these problems with the debt ceiling, does that already erode confidence? And would that already send you know, interest rates higher and raise the cost of borrowing for the US government? And then you're kind of back into uh, a kind of a really catastrophic situation anyway. Is there some reason, do you think, why there has been kind of reluctance historically, I think, for uh, from the executive branch to embrace these kinds of ideas, sort of acknowledging the craziness. I mean, from one perspective, that's great. These ideas are kind of crazy. And I suppose it's nice to have people behaving seriously when they're, um, you know, part of the, the U.S. government. But, you know, I'm assuming a, a lot of the value these ideas have is as kind of threats to uh, force Congress to behave a little bit more reasonably, but I, I don't really get the sense that that people in the Biden administration, Obama administration, I didn't get the sense this way. I kind of tuned out for the whole Trump era, so can't really <laughs> speak to that. But um, why aren't why isn't there a more kind of full throated embrace of this by the Biden administration, even if they are like hoping to God they never have to to do any of these crazy things? That's a great question. I And I honestly, I don't know, maybe someone with more of a kind of political, uh, more of a political brain would be able to, to answer that question a little bit 
better. I feel like, you know, like the government's always trying to work within like the norms and everything that they've they've set up. And for some reason, we just can't seem to kick this debt ceiling idea, this idea that we have to have a debt ceiling. And so, um, and I think it's it's also maybe a convenient political issue to say, well, look, the other party is holding us hostage. And so um, instead of questioning the validity of the debt ceiling at all, you can you can use it as maybe a convenient way to blame your the opposition party for kind of holding up holding up progress. Um, and maybe they would rather kind of force that kind of fight than you know spend all these times in the spend all this time in the wonky details of figuring what like a perpetual bond would look like. Waylon, this is this just occurred to me, but. Do they have similar debates in Denmark? Do you know? Like, do they, they probably don't have uh, Congress people like Matt Getz and whoever the other total nutcases or nitwits. I should probably not use words like that uh, on the podcast because I am so neutral about things like that. But it, it, do they do they have drama like this in Denmark over the debt ceiling, or they they they're just chugging along? I think they're just chugging along. I, I mean, I haven't heard anything and I don't know if it's because the U.S. just sucks all the uh, oxygen out of the room. But I mean, I haven't heard a peep about what's going on in, with Danish debt. I don't know a thing about Danish debt. <laughs> well, they have a lot of it. You know, they're a rich <laughs> European country. They're AAA rated. This is like, I mean, the U.S. is considered uh, to have risk-free debt. And uh, so is Denmark. So the comparison's very nice but I haven't seen any mention of, you know, whether they have, they are held political hostage, you know, every few years in a new administration. Like maybe we should look to them to see how, you know, adults behave. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the other thing to note about the debt ceiling is that we have this situation in the US where also the budget is the budget and the budget is also supposed to be this legally binding thing, right? So then we run into this stupid dilemma where you know, we're obligated to spend all this money in the budget because we've decided that's the budget. Uh, and yet uh, we have this debt ceiling that uh, keeps the, the government from borrowing all of the money it needs to in order to fund the budget that it already agreed to. <laughs> and I don't know if, uh, this feels like something that probably doesn't happen in Denmark. I could be wrong, but it, it, it feels like something that comes out of uh, American political dysfunction. Um, and so I wonder if that's another element of it as well. Speaking of political dysfunction and potential cures, I'm wondering if we can just shift gears a little bit because I realized there is one maybe less crazy, but more confrontational idea that we haven't talked about yet, which um, I wanted to just raise to see if you, uh, if you had some thoughts on it. And this is basically the idea that, you know, we have a public debt clause in the 14th Amendment, and, and the president has an independent obligation to ensure and evaluate the constitutionality of what the United States does. And so to the extent one views obstructionist conduct by Congress, refusing to, to raise the debt limit in circumstances that might pro provoke a default. Some people have suggested, I think a little crazily, but 
I want to talk, we're talking about crazy stuff anyway, but they've suggested that the president could just order the treasury to continue borrowing anyway on the theory that congressional stonewalling was effectively unconstitutional. Have you have you heard people talking about this idea, taking it seriously? It seems sort of Looney Tunes to me, but but I, I confess I don't know anything about constitutional law. And so <laughs> almost all constitutional law seems a little Looney Tunes to me. Yeah, and I am far from a constitutional law expert myself in that I don't know anything about it either. Um, but I have heard this is the 14th Amendment kind of loophole, right? That uh, the 14th Amendment says the, the public debt is valid. And so uh, the we could simply use the 14th Amendment to ignore the debt limit, right? That's kind of the, the mechanics of this. What I find interesting about this is, you know, I guess it would just be up to Janet Yellen to decide what to do. Um, and even let's say she's acting under orders from the president. So she, the treasury continues to issue more debt. I think this gets us back into the question that comes up whenever you look at any of these ideas, which is how do you expect uh, treasury investors or people, the people in the financial markets to behave? And I think that is such a wild card um, because like on paper, all of these things look like they technically work, but then if the result is a complete meltdown in treasury markets because people you know, are um, pricing in all sorts of uh, expectations and worst case scenarios potentially about what's going on with the government, then uh, you, know, you are just kind of swapping in one kind of chaos for another. And um, I think, I, sometimes I wonder if the fear of that is as big or maybe even bigger than some of the fears of, well, so-and-so is going to sue us, or this is going to go to the Supreme Court. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, if the Treasury tried to sell bonds, uh, invoke the 14th Amendment and just keep selling bonds, like would anyone buy those bonds? What kind of interest rates would people demand on those bonds? I mean, that would be a fascinating, but like potentially very chaotic scenario. So this is, I think this is, this is a very interesting question that you've raised. And it really gets to the heart of the question, which is, if the Treasury were to issue bonds in violation of the debt ceiling, assuming that there's not other legal restrictions that could come into play, the Treasury has, we know, has, has a fair amount of discretion as to how to do its issuances you know, what would happen to the markets? And going back to where we started, if the debts, if investors are not looking at the debt ceiling as providing them with any kind of assurance about the credibility of the US, you know, so maybe if uh, Suriname had a debt ceiling and investors are very worried about Suriname's government issuing too much debt, uh, violating the debt ceiling might increase their cost of credit. But given that the US is supposedly issuing risk-free debt, why should it matter? It's sort of overdetermined that this is risk-free debt. And we even see in situations like to go back to Puerto Rico, that so long as the crisis has not hit, the markets are more than willing to keep borrowing, uh, keep lending so long as 
they're continuing to get paid. So all of that is a precursor to asking just amongst ourselves whether or not there is a different meaning of this 14th Amendment clause than the suggestions that it makes the debt ceiling invalid, but a meaning that allows the Treasury to continue to issue, and I'm, I'm not being clear, but here, here's here's where I'm getting at. And with, with, again, the caveat that I don't know squat about constitutional law, and my my I think my faculty is like 50% constitutional law <laughs> scholars who would scoff at the idea that I, sh I should be ever allowed to talk about anything of the Constitution. But then since they're not on the podcast, we're going to give them a big F you, and I'm going to talk about it anyway. So the, the, the part of the 14th Amendment if I remember correctly, is that the government says we will not challenge the validity of this debt. And here I'm drawing on uh, a prior podcast with our friend uh, Vince Bucola, uh, who talked about municipal debt in the 1800s on our podcast, and our dear friend Anna Gelpern, who is, I, I think, working on an article. So errors are mine, but ideas are from them. In the 1800s, there was a very specific meaning to this notion of challenging the validity of the debt. And it was, the concern was that governments, sneaky governments, after they had issued debt in violation of their debt ceilings or balanced budget laws or uh, some other kinds of uh, constraints that they had put in their constitution or in their laws, after they had put in the constraints and then issued bonds in violation of the constraints, would then turn to investors and said, ha, 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 you bought bonds that were in violation of our law. You should have known that. So now we don't have to repay mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Completely ridiculous. So if with all of that as a precursor, if the U.S. is able to persuade investors that we will continue to pay you, because all of these laws are kind of irrelevant, then all that the 14th Amendment clause means is that the U.S. is promising not to do what many of the state governments did in the late 1800s, which was to say, ha ha ha, we're not going to pay you back because you, you, you bought our debt in violation of this law. So in, in some ways, that, that's both good, which suggests Treasury can keep issuing, but it's, it's also bad because investors will realize, look, there is maybe some tiny, tiny risk. Uh, I, I don't know. Like maybe there's no risk. Uh, I, I put that to both you and Mark uh, before we end our podcast. Oh, well, it's it feels risky or it sounds risky, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, anytime you're invoking an amendment of the Constitution, I feel like that's not a risk free move by by any means. And I, I guess what's giving me a little bit of a stomach ache is let's say they invoke the 14th Amendment. Treasury keeps issuing bonds in violation of, or like ignoring the debt limit. What if there's some kind of regime change or something? And then and then what if there's a legal challenge and then it's decided that that debt was not issued legally 
because the government never should have done it in the first place, then what happens to those bondholders? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is, this is, I think, the important question, although maybe we can ask it about all of the proposals that we're talking about today. Uh, To the extent there's legal risk that's suddenly injected into these bonds, you know, one would want to get that resolved quickly rather than, you know, through years and years of litigation. Um, But hopefully, uh, hopefully we don't get to that point, maybe. Hopefully, um, at some point uh, before this all blows up, there is some kind of rational resolution to all of this. Although I fear that even if there is, all it means is we get another six months or something of of um, delay until we hit the next the next debt limit. But Waylon, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, this has been super fun and super uh, educational for us. And um, I only want to apologize that we contributed so little to the discussion. We being <laughs> we being the lawyers here. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. No, I mean I learned so much from you, and I again I don't have I don't know anything about the legal basis of any of this stuff. This is all just kind of interesting you know, financial engineering tricks to me. So it's it's great to hear kind of your reaction to it too from a legal perspective.